Uh, so, Dan, when we think about Revolver, it's interesting because a moment ago I asked you where you ranked Rubber Soul on your top Beatles albums, and you said it was in your top five. I don't think you mentioned Revolver as being in the top five. Am I correct about that? Oh, no, I did. You I did, did. Yeah, okay. Because I said I it yeah. kind of switches place with Revolver. Oh, right. Um, right. It's interesting, and, and it shows when you talk about favorites uh, as opposed to, I guess, um, ranking albums as far as like the best work of a band right revolver is not my favorite beatles album but i I would i would argue to say it's probably their their best album as far as what they did in the studio together i think it represents um a a peak in their creativity as a collaborative Mm -hmm. where as you got into later albums that were still you were starting to see more individual tracks and i think you know you could say that that sergeant pepper was really a paul driven album Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was really kind of Paul's baby, uh, where, you know, revolver, you see John is still has, has his hand in the pot there. Paul is, 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 is growing as a writer. I think George has his, his most amount of songs on an album to date Yes, on revolver. He's got uh, tax man, which opens, mm-hmm. he's got love you too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got I Want to Tell You. Right. I think, is that it? He's got. I think that's it on Revolver. Yeah. But three was a big number for him at the time. He's got right. four on the White Album, and that's a double album. Right. That's interesting. Yes. You know, so, um, and he's got the lead the lead, lead off track on the album, which was a first too. Um, right. So we're really seeing, you know, a, a real collabor- a collaboration here. And the Ringo song on the, um, on Rubber, on a Revolver is Yellow Submarine, which is such. Ringo made so much his own that people actually thought some people actually think he wrote that and and he didn't. That's a Paul song. It still holds up extremely well among multiple generations today. Mm -hmm. Yellow submarine. Uh, Dan, why don't we go through some particular tracks on revolver and discuss them? But before we do so, I want to point out that for many years among music critics, Sergeant peppers had consistently gotten in the number one title Beatles greatest album, Sergeant peppers, I'm not saying we agree with that, but that's what many had said. Mm-hmm. What we've begun to see in recent years is this new set of th- thoughts that consistently place Revolver in the number one spot. Uh, I think it was maybe in Rolling Stone magazine a couple of years ago ranked Revolver as their number one album of all time. I don't necessarily agree with that, uh, although I'm not going to argue. It's not like they're choosing something shocking for that title. Uh, but it's interesting the way Revolver has increased in respect over the years among music critics and fans Mm -hmm. and uh dan let's begin our discussion of revolver a little bit more in depth now by talking about eleanor rigby which is the second track on the album now dan this track i'm going to say a few things about this track because i think there's some really interesting points about eleanor rigby Uh, first off in terms of the string arrangement that was put together by george martin one of the things i learned in recent years is that he was heavily influenced by the shower scene music in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where the score there was done by the great film composer Bernard Herrmann. You know, that stabbing sound. What George Martin liked about it was the fast-paced nature of the strings. And when you listen to the instrumentation of the strings on Eleanor Rigby, by the way, on Beatles Anthology 2, you can get a real, it's an instrumental, instrumental version of the track, which stands out. You see those fast-paced strings, and you could see very clearly how he was influenced by the psycho strings from 
the Hitchcock film, which is really fascinating. But what I wanted to tell was just an interesting story about when I went to Liverpool back in 2008, because it ties into this song. Now, the origin of this song and how Paul came up with the lyrics to Eleanor Rigby have been debated often, and Paul himself has been asked about it. I think Paul may have said over the years that he got the word Eleanor from a co-star of the Beatles in the Help film named Eleanor Braun. That was where the first word Eleanor, first name Eleanor came in. And I think the way Paul tells the story is that he literally flipped through the phone book and stumbled onto a page and saw the last name Rigby. And he liked the name of the the sound of the name Eleanor Rigby. If this is true, this is one of the greatest coincidences, really most fascinating coincidences in music history. But when John and Paul first met, and we talked about this in an earlier episode, it was at a Liverpool church where John's band, the Quarrymen, were playing a concert at a church fete. And in the cemetery of that church is a grave. Buried in the grave is somebody named Eleanor Rigby. And when I was in Liverpool back in 2008, my brother and I took what is called the Magical Mystery Tour, where you board a bus that looks like the Magical Mystery Tour bus, and they take you to the Beatles legendary sites in Liverpool, and you get off at a few of the stops. But anyhow, we passed the church where John met Paul, and I was able to look into the cemetery as the bus was driving by. And of course, I was looking for that grave, and I believe I happened to see the Rigby grave. I think it's her and several family members that are buried there. And what I just find so hard to believe in Paul's telling of the story is that he could have come up with the name Eleanor Rigby, and yet there's an actual person named Eleanor Rigby buried at the church where he first met John. Uh, that's a fascinating, fascinating story. Dan, I mean, do you have any, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I feel like that, that has to kind of lodge somewhere in your subconscious, you know? I mean, yeah. I'm sure that he encountered it at some point, um, and then it kind of gets stuck back there, and then other things kind of bring it up. I totally believe that the, the, the way in which he came up with the the name, you know, mm-hmm. but I think once he got the name, there was probably a, a subconscious link to that tombstone and, and that kind of informed some of the rest of the song. Right. Um, especially the last verse of, you know, father Mackenzie wiping his dirt, wiping the dirt from his hands and walking away from the grave. And, right. and you know, that I'm, I'm sure in his mind, uh, when he was writing that Paul was probably imagining that, that churchyard and that graveyard. Yeah. It's it's really an incredible song, especially lyrically. Um, I've I've used it um, in class to to teach my students about poetry. Yes, about how to um, analyze poetry mm-hmm. and how to read between the lines and, and look at the symbolism and, and the real meanings of things. Uh, because there's so many great poetic lines in there. Yes, uh, that Paul comes up with and wearing the face that she keeps in the jar by the door. And the idea of Father Mackenzie darning his socks, you know. Right. He's a priest. Um, he's darning his socks, and uh, he's mending the soles of the socks, which his job is, I guess, if you look at it, his job is to mend the soles of people. And so, so how old was Paul when he wrote Eleanor Rigby? So, uh, 66. So, Paul was... He was born 1942. 24. Wait, 24. Let's 24. Say 24. Yeah, 24. Wow. So, he was 24 pretty... years old. So, he's younger than Adam Levine was when <laughs> Adam Levine played in the Super Bowl. <laughs> By the way, on a, you know, going back to the 1960s music discussion, one of the most fascinating things to think about from the music of that period is just how young 
the artists were. They were writing songs in their 20s that reflect life experiences way beyond their years, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Eleanor Rigby is a great track, and I think you're completely correct when you cite it as poetry. It's one of those songs where when you listen to the lyrics, your mind can give you different imagery. that You can interpret the lyrics any number of uh, ways, and it is like a mini movie in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Following Eleanor Rigby on the Revolver album is a song which is one of my favorite Beatles tracks, I'm Only Sleeping. And I happened to be driving to work yesterday and listening to Breakfast with the Beatles in the car, and they were playing I'm Only Sleeping, and I got goosebumps down my body. It's one of those songs that, I don't know what it is, if it's the lyrics or the melody or the arrangements, but it still sort of gets me, even now, having heard the song so many times. Uh, what makes this song memorable from a musical perspective is the fact that it fe- it may be the first Beatles track to feature a backwards guitar sound in the where it sounds like somebody's yawning. I think for years I thought it was a yawn, but it really mm-hmm. is. If I'm right, am I right about that, Dan? It's a backwards guitar. Yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah. George uh, George's solo played uh, backwards. Yeah, and gives you that yawning effect. He used um, in playing it for us. He used some effects on it, um, a volume pedal, which he also used on. Um, yes, it is, uh, which creates those those volume swells. Right. Uh, if you listen to to let to yes, it is the guitar intro. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound on that guitar is the volume pedal. So he had used that on um, playing the so- playing the the solo forward to create a little bit of effect. And then when you looped it backwards, the backward um, looping with the volume pedal creates this almost yawning mm-hmm. effect um, on the guitar, which is awesome. And you're right. I think it's the first the first Beatles track that included a, a backwards guitar. Not the first Beatles track to include um, anything uh, uh, anything backwards. Uh, first backmasking on a Beatles track was Rain. Uh, yes. the, the John singing the uh, the first the last ver- the first verse in the uh, outro, and then they looped that backwards. To, to, that that's a pretty cool effect too, but not as cool as the guitar solo on on uh, I'm Only Sleeping. And you know you bring up Rain. Uh, Rain was the B side to Paperback Writer, the single that came out just a beautiful single and rain uh you're right dan in terms of the backward sounds on the track and for me it actually features for ringo's purposes some of his best drumming uh the way rain sounds with his drumming is just uh stellar and it's another example of we could probably spend an hour talking about those two songs paperback writer and rain and yet they're not even featured on any Beatles album from the period, which is remarkable. Uh-huh. Uh, so Revolver, I'm Only Sleeping, one of my favorite tracks. And then you get to Love You Too, which, as you mentioned earlier, was a song that was written by George, features heavy Indian instrumentation. So the again, that evolution. You have Indian introduction during Help. You have the sound of the sitar in Norwegian Wood. And then on the next album, full-blown Indian sounds on Love You Too. What are your thoughts on this track, Dan, in terms of how it fits into the george indian music collection for lack of a better phrase i feel like it's uh we see we're seeing like a step steps in an evolution Mm -hmm. um so i feel like it's is george kind of finally putting two steps in to the indian music um bringing the indian music into the band norwegian wood was kind of like you know george kind of being coy and oh i have this thing that you know might sound good on it why don't we try it? And you get the sitar in there, mm-hmm. which then you ended up with sitars on numerous other, you know, rock and pop songs coming out between 65 and 66. You know, you have the stones doing it on painted black, um, the kinks on see my friends and, 
Um, but this is George kind of now jumping fully into it. And it's not just a sitar used to color um, a, a pretty standard rock or pop track with standard Western in, in, instrumentation. This is an Indian, a song dominated by Indian instrumentation. Mm -hmm. And um, and he would take it further with uh, Within You, Without You, which to me is the best of the George you know, Indian um, compositions. And do you say that from a musical and a lyrical perspective? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's, it's, there's still elements of, um, of, uh, you know, Western, the Western music in, in love you too, where within you, without you, the only instrumentation are, is the Indian musicians mm -hmm. that are playing on that track. Then you have after love you too on the revolver for me, what is in my top three of Beatles songs and that's here, there, and everywhere. Uh, the Paul track, which it's it, clearly a Beach Boys influence, with the other members of the group harmonizing with Paul. Mm -hmm. uh, what stands out to me with this track, in addition to the lyrics, excuse me, in addition to the melody, which is beautiful, are the lyrics. And this is again another example of pure Paul poetry. Uh, lyrics like. You know, why don't we take a minute, Dan? This is probably maybe the only time in our set of shows here on the Stuff We Love podcast where I'm going to read a full song lyrically, or at least a lot of a, a song lyrically. Do you mind if I do that? No, go ahead. Okay. So here, there, and everywhere, I brought it up via Google. It has an introduction where Paul sings, to lead a better life, I need my love to be here. And then it goes on to say, here, making each day of the year, changing my life with a wave of her hand. Nobody can deny that there's something there. There, running my hands through her hair. Both of us thinking how good it can be. Someone is speaking, but she doesn't know he's there. I want her everywhere. And if she's beside me, I know I need never care. But to love her is to need her everywhere. Knowing that love is to share. Each one believing that love never dies. Watching their eyes and hoping I'm always there. And then it goes on to repeat that phrase and the song concludes with, I will be there and everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. And I'm going to just go for another moment to, to do a quick analysis of the lyrics and why I think they're so phenomenal. First off, just in terms of telling a story, when Paul sings, there running my hands through her hair, both of us thinking how good it can be, someone is speaking, but she doesn't know he's there. The, the idea that captures so perfectly what it is to be making a connection to another person in the early stages of love or relationship, whatever you want to call it, where the person is so focused on what it is that you're saying that someone else is talking, but she doesn't even know he's there. She's able to disregard what it is that that person is saying. Another thing that I love that Paul does in this track is the way he takes words and repeats them but builds up on them. So, for example, nobody can deny that there's something there. There, running my hands through her hair. He, You know, you don't see artists taking there and mentioning it twice like that. So, so then, for example, the, the last lyrics of the song, I will be there and everywhere. He takes the last two words from the title of the song and then concludes the song by giving the full title, here, there, and everywhere. It's it's a work of art. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. if there was a Mount Rushmore of song lyrics, I think I would consider putting this up there. It never, never fails to amaze me in terms of its beauty. 
The last thing I'll say about Here, There, and Everywhere before I turn it over to you is that the studio release version from Revolver is actually not even my favorite version of the song that I have heard. When the Beatles released the Real Love single at the time of Anthology 2, a track that appeared on that single was what I guess is a remix of Here, There, and Everywhere, which features Paul himself singing the lead vocal, and then you don't hear any of the other members of the Beatles until the end of the track, where they jump in and give this ooh sound with their backing vocals. Major Beach Boys influence there. F- tremendous Beach Boys influence. And it just is gorgeous. A gorgeous track. So the past two minutes have my way, have been my way of saying, I love this song. I love this song. Dan, thoughts? Um, it's a great song. Um, definitely a Beach Boys influence on it. I, I think uh, Brian Wilson always said that uh, he felt it was influenced by God Only Knows. There's some, I, I mean, I feel if it has any connection to a song on on um, on Pet Sounds, it's more reminiscent of something like Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder mm. um, than, than God Only Knows. And Dan, do you say that because of the lyrics and the idea of being close with the person you're interested in romantically? Yeah, it's lyrically and it's also musically. The 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 tone of it um, is very to me more online with that. But um, I think another thing you see in the song, you know, you're talking about the lyrics of it, is what we were talking about earlier about the the collab collaborative nature of of Revolver and um, the competition between you know John and Paul and how they pushed each other to be better songwriters. Right. Um, and they always, I think, kind of had um, a little bit of resentment towards how the media at the time portrayed them as far as their songs. You know, John was the edgy, harder, sarcastic, witty one. Paul was like the poppy, lightweight, um, you know, love song writer. Um, not a lot of big on sentiment, but not a lot of content kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that pushed them uh, at times, John looking, being like, look, I can write something that has a nice melody too. And Paul being like, no, I can write something that's deep and edgy too. And, um, and because of that, you get these, it pushed them to come out with these great, these great songs and these great lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I think here, there and everywhere is a great example of that, of Paul, taking what people had said about a John song, like um, you've got to hide your love away where there was so much discussion when that song came out about the sim- the symbolism of the lyrics and what was John talking about? Was he talking about um, being um, upset because he had to hide the fact that he was married from the public right. when the Beatles were first getting popular? Was he talking about the fact that he was unhappy in this life of a Beatle portraying this, you know, Beatle John, which, you know, he would talk about in the late sixties and early seventies, you know, Beatle John being, um, not who John really was. Right. Was that kind of an early attempt at him kind of putting that out there or was the song from, you know, the point of view of Brian Epstein. There's a lot of talk about that, that John wrote that as kind of, um, talking about Brian Epstein and the fact that, um, he was homosexual and, you know, what he was dealing with in his life. Mm -hmm. And, um, Paul looking at all that talk and be like, well, they, you know, John, they think John's so deep. I'm going to show them that I can be deep too. And then writing something like here, there and everywhere where, um, you can see uh, here, there and everywhere in Eleanor Rigby, where now you see, you know, Paul, the poet. 
Dan, that was a great analysis, by the way. That's, oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to think what to say in response. I can't even think of anything. <laughs> no, 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 that was great. That was great. And I think the unsung he- hero of these albums, too, which we haven't talked about yet, is George Martin. Yes. Um, the, George Martin's production and the fact that he was able to take what they wanted and produce it on the album and put it out there right. uh, is amazing, especially with John. You know, I've read a lot about how uh, Paul, to this day, I, I mean, we all know Paul is an incredible songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and Paul doesn't have a problem sitting down and telling you what he wants in his song. Right. And John was very abstract and obtuse. So John would say stuff like, I remember reading an interview where George Martin, they didn't say what song it was. And I've to this day, I'm curious as to what song it was. Um, John telling him that he wanted the song to sound like an orange. Hmm. And George Martin trying to figure out what he meant by that and having to figure out how to make a song sound like an orange. You know, the famous instruction that John gave um, George Martin with Tomorrow Never Knows right. was I wanted it I wanted to sound like a thousand of the thousand Buddhist monks sitting on a hill chanting at the same time. Right. Well then along those lines, let's turn to that track. That's there were a couple of other tracks I wanted to highlight from Revolver and that was absolutely one of them. Uh, the closing track on the album, Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, and keep going with what you were saying. You were talking about how John wanted that sound. And talk about what George Martin did to accomplish that, along with Jeff Emmerich. I mean, um, it's how do you take that and, and make that a reality? And, um, you know, we've heard on like Anthology 3, different, different versions of it, Anthology 2, I should say, of them trying to get to that. And um, the final product, especially being a song that, I mean, it's, it's all on one chord. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Paul talks too in the anthology about, you know, John coming in and playing it for them and strumming earnestly on a C chord through the whole thing and singing it. And it's how do you, how do you make that work? And this is where we see really heavily for the first time, I think on a Beatles track, the use of tape loops. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got another excellent Ringo broken drum pattern, similar to Ticket to Ride. Um, we have snippets of backwards guitar in there. John's voice kind of feed it through almost like a megaphone sound, right? You know, to give him this kind of distant hypnotic sound. And then these different tape loops that are running through that sound like, like squawking birds and things like that. Uh, which it's funny. I think one of those uh, tapes is, is uh, a sound of Paul laughing sped up to pitch it higher and then and then and then played backwards um so there's a lot of interesting little sounds on that really thinking outside the box and and committing something to record that it's it's a sound collage in in many ways and we hadn't heard that really before not only does the sound of tomorrow never knows differ from anything the beatles had ever done but it really is unique from any other psychedelic type sound song that was coming out from any artist at that time period. Uh, and of course, it begins with one of my favorite Beatles lyrics, which I guess is directly from Timothy Leary's uh, Turn Off Your Mind, okay. Relax and Float Downstream. Yeah, I think it was um, uh, Timothy Leary's. I think jo- uh, John got the inspiration from Timothy Leary's um, commentary on the I Ching. I think yes, that's what it was. I think that's right. Um, that's what everybody's and, talking about in 2019. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's a very Zen track, you know, you know, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. And uh, I I like the the last line, you know, play the game existence to the end of the beginning. And, you know, the sequencing also of songs on the album. I mean, to go from before we get to that point, can I mention, I don't mean to 
I don't no, mean no to, problem. Yeah, go ahead. There was one other song that I wanted to focus on before we talk about sequencing. Do you mind if I just do that real quick? Sure. Okay. The, uh, the other song I wanted to focus on from Revolver is another Paul Ballad. The name of the song is For No One. And I have heard many other podcasts and discussions with Beatles experts, and this is a song that they all go to as being the maybe the overlooked gem in McCartney's Beatles catalog. And I'm not going to disagree with that because it is a, an impeccable song that succeeds on every level. And even though I said I wouldn't read lyrics from a track besides Here, There, and Everywhere, with your permission, Dan... If you'll indulge me, I'm going to read the lyrics to For No One. Okay, go ahead. Because to me, this is an example of Beatles' mid-1960s poetry in motion. And the, the theme of the song, For No One, what it's about is somebody dealing with the end of a relationship. And as, as a matter of fact, did Paul write this song after his relationship with Jane Asher ended? Was that? Or close it? to, it's either when it ended or close to the close end. Close to it, which is. Yeah, we, we see a lot of Jane Asher-inspired yes. songs. On on rubber soul and revolver, so I think this was close to the end of that relationship. Yeah, I, I and and you'll see why here as I get into these lyrics. The lyrics are as follows: Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all the words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. So there, he's basically saying, even though the relationship is over, you focus on those kind words. You try to remember what was good about the relationship. That's his perspective. And then it now turns to the female perspective. She wakes up. She makes up. She takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you. Now, I can tell you, when I go out with my wife, it takes her a year and a day to get ready. And I'm often saying, hurry up, hurry up. But here in this song, the female here doesn't feel she has to hurry because she no longer needs you. You're not part of her life anymore. Then it goes on to say, and in her eyes, you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears cried for no one. A love that should have lasted years. So the female here is crying and there are tears, but there's no love there. It's, it's tears cried for no one. It's like empty tears. Now it goes back to the male perspective. You want her. You need her. And yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead. You think she needs you. And then it goes on to, and in her eyes you see nothing. That's the repeat. And then as we head towards the end of the song, focuses on both the male and the female. You stay home. She goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone, but now he's gone. She doesn't need him. Now, who's she saying that to? Is she saying that to girlfriends? Is she saying that to a, another male that's interested in her? You never know. And then the lyrics repeat themselves again. So to me, like you look at these lyrics and lyrics alone cause you goosebumps with this track. And of course, the melody is beautiful. The Paul vocal is beautiful. Uh, the instrumentation works really well. I believe they used a... Piccolo? Am I right about that? Uh, French horn. French horn. French horn, right. Yeah. You don't see that in pop music from the time no, period. Not many groups are using French horn. So I, I only took the time to read the lyrics for Here, There, and Everywhere and for no one because to me they're one proof that Paul McCartney is the greatest songwriter in the history of music and two, they're two of the highlights in the Beatles catalog for me. I, and I think this song along with the output, this song along with a lot of tracks on, on Pet Sounds, along with in my life with the use of the harpsichord um, brings about this kind of thing that we, this, this movement we see in, in, in late sixties rock, this Baroque pop. Right. Um, and we, we start to see merge into prog rock. 
Um, and Pepper has, has a lot to do with that too. Uh, stuff like uh, Days of Future Past by uh, Moody Blues and, and Procol Harum's output. Uh, it starts to find its roots here in the, the instrumentation you see on songs like For No One and In My Life. Hey, Dan, do you think I can go to one of those open mic nights at a bar where people read poetry and I could get up there and recite the lyrics to a lesser known Beatles track among most people like for no one and have people in awe of my poetry ability? You, you might be able to. Yeah, as, lo- as long as there's no one in the crowd that's like, hey, that sounds true. You bring some bongos. Yeah. <laughs> You I could, could probably get away with it. I should get a job doing lyrical analysis of Beatles songs. Where I just sit, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I, there's a um, an app. It's like for mindfulness and, and and like sleep. It's called Calm. Calm. Yeah, it was and, the app of the year. I think last year, two years ago. Yeah, and they have like uh, um, like sleep time stories, like adult bedtime stories, and different people reading these stories. There's one like Matthew McConaughey reading this like story in a comic voice. We could do like Scott reads Beatles lyrics in like a calming voice with like water flowing behind, and it'd be like a new app, you know? Yes. You know, meditate Scott. as Scott reads the lyrics of the Beatles. Scott reads the lyrics to Taxman. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's great. So Dan, let's um let's conclude our discussion of Revolver by getting a little bit more in depth into something you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is the sequencing of the tracks on the album. Uh, can you elaborate on that? The, just the genius of it. I think the hardest thing when you're looking at al- an album is is sometimes is how to sequence it. Right. Unless unless it's conceptual. And, mm-hmm. and the, the songs kind of have to follow a concept. And, and you want variation. You, you know, you don't want too many songs next to each other that sound the same. Um, you want to mix up your ballads and your faster songs. You know, you want to start off with something exciting. You want to end with something exciting. And I think Revolver, there's a lot of examples of the genius in the Beatles and George Martin's ability to sequence an album. Mm-hmm. Opening with Taxman, going to... Um, um, Eleanor Rigby into I'm Only Sleeping. Um, and I was going to say one of the best examples of this is going from a song like Got to Get You Into My Life into Tomorrow Never Knows mm-hmm. as far as the sequencing of two tracks. Right. Like there's no bigger dichotomy between <laughs> two tracks than that. And yet it works perfectly. Yeah. So Got to Get You Into My Life for those that aren't familiar with it, perhaps you know the earth wind and fire version released in the seventies, which I think went to number one. I think you're right. I think it did. And I also think got to get you into my life. The Beatles version reentered the charts in the eighties when it was released on a Beatles compilation, but don't hold me to that. I'm pretty sure though. That's right. But anyhow, got to get you into my life. What stands out about that track always for me is the brass instrumentation deployed on the track. Very much of a tribute to a Motown sound like you might hear on Dancing in the Streets or something like that with the saxophone on that track. But it's a to- you're right, Dan. It's a totally different sound than what you hear from Tomorrow Never Knows. Got to Get You Into My Life is a track that would play at a wedding when people would be dancing on the dance floor, whereas Tomorrow Never Knows would be played in a college dorm room with uh, a towel tucked under the opening on the door to make sure that the RA didn't smell anything. You know, So it's right. a very... Uh, not that I know anything about that, but that's uh, right. that's an interesting difference right there. Right. What, but the, the 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 ironic thing about that is that "Got to Get You Into My Life" is about marijuana. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's <laughs> so true. That's, and so they kind of do go together. But um, 
you wouldn't know that just no. by I mean it's such a great track and it's another great example of, of Paul's power as, as as a singer right um, Paul has often been called the best singer in the group which I think he definitely is Agreed. but um, but he's also one of the, the I think one of the greatest rock and roll singers of all time um, he's got an incredible range if you don't think Paul McCartney has a great uh, an incredible range listen to um, a woman a why yeah which is a little known solo track um from a b-side from the ram sessions and mm. you'll get um a glimpse of of paul's voice how he can get very low and then he can get very high yes. and in that little richard kind of screaming style uh, paul's an incredible incredible vocalist doesn't always get the credit he deserves for that you want to take us into the sergeant pepper discussion yeah, I think what we see now is is an incredible amount of development in a very, very short period of time. So um, Revolver is um, released the end of August of, uh, end of, no, beginning of August. It was August 5th, 1966. Um, the Beatles performed their last live concert, Candlestick Park in San Francisco, at the end of August 66. Right. And then um, they take a break uh, for a few months. And uh, I think John goes off to uh, to film How I Won the War in Almeria, Spain mm-hmm. during this period. Um, I think Paul works on the soundtrack or um, the score to a film called The Family Way, mm-hmm. along with George Martin. Um, I think George went to India during this time. He did. And, um, and they return. And there's a lot of speculation as to wh- whether the end of their touring was going to be the end of the Beatles. Um, they come back to Abbey Road to record Strawberry Fields and to record Penny Lane, which was supposed right. to be part of a new album that was going to focus on their youth um, growing up in Liverpool, kind of like a look back at, at the at their youth, which um, was pretty it's pretty interesting when you look at psychedelic rock, um, a lot of the psychedelic movement was kind of this looking back at a more youthful period as <laughs> far as, you know, some of the lyrics and, and, and themes. If you look at Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, their debut album, their, their only full one with Sid Barrett, a lot of the lyrics are kind of this, this pion to, to childhood mm-hmm. um, in a simpler time. But the first tracks from the Pepper Sessions to be released are the, sing- the double A-side single um, for Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. And if you compare that to revolver what was released on revolver in about a like four month period maybe five month period or so they develop in five months what you would think would take a year or two like it's the it's the it's the sound of an entirely different band Mm -hmm. and and that brings us into pepper when we get to pepper we're seeing a revolutionary beatles we're seeing a beatles that sound entirely different from what i think what we've seen in any of the albums prior Mm -hmm. And what I was going to say before, when you were talking about the Beatles, like just fitting the 60s, I think one of the reasons why Pepper gets so much praise, is it the Beatles' best work? I think that's arguable. Mm -hmm. Some people will say yes, some people will say no, um, will point to albums like Revolver um, or others. But I don't think any album, with the exception of maybe um, Nirvana's Nevermind, represented a time period. Uh, 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 as well as Sergeant Pepper fit into June 1967 and that summer of love. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was the just 
the perfect album. It was revolutionary. It it spawned other groups to try to make their own Sgt. Pepper. Um, some were very were successful with it. Some failed miserably, like the Stones and their Satanic Majesty's Request. Right. Um, but I think it just fit so well in that summer of 67 mm-hmm. um, that that's one of the things that make it the album that it is. And a great example of what you said earlier about the Beatles just fitting and, and kind of uh, encapsulating all that was the 60s. Mm-hmm. That album and the Beatles encapsulated, I think, the summer of 67. Now, when it comes to Sgt. Pepper, the album, it's an album which, just like everything else we've talked about with Revolver, and even to a certain degree, Rubber Soul, although it's much stronger on Sgt. Pepper and Revolver, has the tracks have a diversity of sound. You have Psychedelia, as evidenced by a track like A Day in the Life. You have a classical sound, as evidenced by She's Leaving Home. Um, you have rocking songs like Sgt. Pepper's itself, Good Morning, Good Morning. There's so much to take in there. A lot of it's led by Paul. He had the lead vocals on several of those tracks. Now, it's interesting, Dan, because when I first heard Sgt. Pepper's back when you and I were sophomores in high school, I heard it after hearing A Hard Day's Night, Help, and Anthology 1, and then I guess I got Sgt. Pepper's. I didn't like it. That was my mm-hmm. quick instinct. It was too weird for me. I thought to myself, well, how come this is so popular? I don't get it. The more I listened to it, the more I came to love it. But it's an album that really, it almost, with a couple of other exceptions in the Beatles catalog, it stands on its own as sort of a unique achievement, uh, not just in terms of songs, but also in terms of album cover design. It's become so iconic in its own right on so many way, in so many ways, it's hard to even really know where to begin talking about the album. But it does involve the track Within You Without You, which, as you mentioned earlier in our show tonight, is sort of the culmination of the George Indian collection. It's this masterpiece of song, both melodically and lyrically. Uh, you have a track like with a little help from my friends, which is, for me, Ringo's strongest Beatles vocal and uh, features great harmonies by the backing by, by the other members of the group. You have Fixing a Hole, which is this whole cacophony. Was that, is that cacophony? That's a Cacophony, word. yeah. Mm-hmm. You have Fixing <laughs> a Hole, which is this whole mixture of sounds uh, that come together for this melodic, rocking, sort of easygoing type track. And then you have When I'm 64, which Paul wrote when he was 15 years old, which would be able to stand on its own along something like Honey Pie from the White Album, this uh-huh. tribute to 1920s-style jazz sounds. Yeah. So there's, there's this diversity of sound, but then you get to the track A Day in the Life, which is the final track on the album. Classic psychedelic tra- uh, track inspired by various stories that were seen in the local newspapers at the time. And uh, it's... I don't even know. What can you say about A Day in the Life that hasn't been said already? It is very often at the top of the list of greatest Beatles songs of all time. It is an artistic achievement in terms of the way that the songs came together. That's like you said earlier, Dan, another testament to the great work of George Martin. Mm -hmm. And um, it is one of the great tracks in music history. Yes, I would say, you know, it's probably ranks as their masterpiece. Um, it's an incredibly produced track. It, it shows John and Paul's ability to work together. 
yes. you know, collaboratively on a track. It's, it's, it's a collaborative track um, and just brilliant, brilliant way to end the album. You know, Sgt. Pepper has this, this, this uh, mythology about it. You know, it it's, uh, stands above a lot of other rock records. You know, um, it, it became this kind of uh, measuring stick for other bands, you know, to, to equal Sgt. Pepper. You know, bands would talk about we're going to make our Sgt. Pepper. Right. Um, and how many, you know, how many bands were able to achieve that? Very, very few. Um, and usually when you're talking about a, a list of greatest albums of all time, mm -hmm. um, you're talking about anything past 1967 that's on that list, you're talking about probably a band's attempt to try to have their own Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Right. You know, so you hear people referring to like uh, Dark Side of the Moon as Pink Floyd Sgt. Pepper. You right. Know? Anything um, you do that's considered your best will be your Sgt. Your Sgt. Pepper. Pepper. Right. Uh, there were bands that tried to have a Sgt. Pepper immediately after that. You know, it, it was considered the first concept album. Um, John took offense to that because he says it doesn't, he said it didn't go anywhere, you know, past. The, the, the first song and introducing Billy Shears, any of the songs could have been on any other album. Um, and I guess to an extent he was right. Uh, it's a very loose concept, but it yes. worked with the packaging and the, the um, sequencing, the concept worked. And then you had other bands that were trying to, um, to emulate that. And I think that the, the, the best um, of that year period, as far as trying to emulate Sgt. Pepper, conceptually was um the who sell out which is the who's kind of sergeant pepper um coming off the heels of pepper album their their like last real psychedelic album and takes the form as like a, a pirate radio station um broadcast a lot of other bands that tried to put out a pepper like an album off the heels of pepper didn't fare too well and that the rolling stones come to mind their satanic majesty's request was right trying to answer pepper and um didn't work and Smile, you know, uh, the the legendary Beach Boys Smile project, um, you know, P Brian Wilson kind of fell apart trying to equal uh, Pepper. It put such pressure on the Beatles to a certain degree and other artists. Mm -hmm. um, we're going very long in the episode, but I wanted to highlight two things on Sgt. Pepper's uh, before we conclude our Beatles discussion tonight, Dan, unless there's anything else you wanted to add about the uh, album. No, it's okay. We could cause we could talk. We could do a whole episode just on Sergeant Pepper, right. probably. Absolutely, that's true. Yeah. So the two things I wanted to highlight, Dan, you had mentioned a second ago whether or not Sergeant Pepper is a concept album. Uh, to me, I think it is a concept album, just in the idea that this album begins with the appearance of Sergeant Pepper's band itself. That goes directly into with a little help from my friends. And then it's true, the other tracks on the album have nothing necessarily to do with Sgt. Pepper's itself, but then the band comes back at the end and you hear crowd, going back to the beginning, you hear crowd noise and so forth. So you do feel like you're at this concert by the Sgt. Pepper's group. And the other thing I wanted to say about Sgt. Pepper, we talked earlier about these weird coincidences that occur in Beatles stories, like for example, the Eleanor Rigby inspiration. Something I did not know until a couple of years ago deals with the Beatles song, She's Leaving Home. Uh, when the Beatles were first achieving fame earlier in the 1960s, they made an appearance on the TV show Ready, Steady, Go, which was a popular Beatles, uh, popular British show at the time period. 
and they judged a contest there, which I believe was a dancing contest that was won by a young girl named Melanie Coe, who was at the time 14 years old. Not, it was not a dancing contest. It was an on-air lip-syncing contest. And the Beatles themselves presented her with the prize for the night. Years later, there was a newspaper article about the fact that this girl, Melanie Coe, ran away from home. And her picture was featured in a newspaper article. And the Beatles, in particular Paul, and that's his song, saw this article. And that's what led Paul to write She's Leaving Home. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me that a girl they met back in 1964 on a TV show would one day, out of all the girls in the world, inspire one of their great tracks. So just another example of Beatles coincidences that really stands out. Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. It's also another great uh, example of what we were talking about before with We Can Work It Out as another song that people say kind of show the the difference between John and Paul. Um, yes. You know, with uh, John kind of um, adding those um, lines in there of what the uh, the parents were saying. Right. Um, and uh, which I think I, I think I, I read that a lot of that was uh, stuff that he had heard um, his uncle George and Aunt Mimi saying um, <laughs> in regard to him. Um, and also getting better, you know, the yes. uh, John adding the line, it can't get, it can't get no worse. Right. Uh, uh, among others. Um, so, uh, but I agree with you on, on Pepper as a concept. It's, it's a loose concept. It does um, hold that concept of the band in the concert, but, but it works. And I think that it, it's, it's the sequencing of the songs and um, some of the sound effects and the whole package that the, the cover itself um, all are part of the, the concept of the record. And um, and inspired a lot of other bands to try to write their own concept albums. So, and Dan, I think that is a great place for us to end our discussion of these Beatles albums tonight. This has been fascinating. I'm eager to go listen to these albums again for the millionth mm -hmm. time, and I think sets us up well for the next episode in our series, which will focus on magical mystery tour yellow submarine the white album abbey road and let it be although of course we do have a white album episode that has already been released which we encourage you to go listen to uh so th this has been great and i know it's a long episode so why don't we now just um, jump right into the famous stuff we love segment where in this case dan and i will be speaking about something which we are a fan of right now and i will start by asking dan what is something that you love so uh, something I'm a fan of right now is is something that um, I'm late uh, getting into. Um, it's a TV show um, that I did not watch while it was actually on TV, although a lot of people told me I should. Um, and and now I just started binging it on Netflix recently, um, which is The Office. Ah. Um, I I never watched The Office was when it was on TV. Um, I don't know why. I'd seen episodes <laughs> here and there, but I never got like into it. And then just recently. Um, I, you know, you look for things to watch and I'm like, Oh, let me, uh, watch, uh, the office. So I started at season one Yes, and, um, and I love it. It's, it's an incredible show. I wish I would have watched it when it was, um, on during its run. Um, but I can see why so many people were telling me, you know, you should really watch that show. Um, it's a great show and, 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 and relatable. I, I think one of the reasons why I find, uh, find it so, um, it's so it's well-written, um, I love the characters, uh, but I, I feel like I've, I've, I've met a lot of those characters. You know, I've, I've, I've worked for a Michael Scott. Um, I've worked with a, a Dwight Shute and an, uh, you know, an Andy Bernard before. 
um, I, I, I found myself in, um, you know, in, in, uh, you know, different situations and, uh, and I love it. It's a, it's a great show. So I'm, I'm a little sorry that I'm late on, on, uh, getting into it, but I'm glad that I am. It's one of the greatest shows of all time. Like you, Dan, I didn't watch it for the most part when it was on, although I did pick it up towards the end of its run. But I've gone back and watched episodes of The Office over and over again on Netflix, and they never get old. I find myself laughing at things that I've laughed at 20 times before. The writing on that show is great. The performances are amazing. I love that show. Great, great choice for stuff we love, Dan. Thank you. So for me this week, my stuff we love, stuff I love, I guess, is NBA virtual reality. Last night I had the cool experience of for the first time watching almost an entire NBA game in virtual reality. So I'm a big sports fan. I subscribe to the NBA League Pass, which enables me to watch games from out of my market area. And I also have a virtual reality device in the PSVR for PlayStation. And if you have an NBA League Pass and a virtual reality device, you can, for about one game per week, it's included in your package, watch the game in virtual reality. So last night was the Indiana Pacers at the New Orleans Pelicans. And I sat there with a huge mask on my face for close to two and a half hours. And what basically happens during the game experience is that you have the choice of either watching it from a courtside seat or watching it from what's known as the director's cut, which switches between the courtside seat and viewpoints behind the baskets. And it switches automatically. So if it's behind the basket at one point and then the ball is brought to the other side of the court, it switches the perspective to that basket. Really, I had never seen anything like this in all my years of watching sports. Uh, the clarity was pretty good. It's not crystal clear. You're not watching in HD. It's more about the idea of watching games from a different angle. And for me, that's really the biggest thing. We're all so used to watching sports from the same viewpoints on every broadcast. And what virtual reality allows you to do is see things from a completely different angle that allow you to enhance your appreciation of the game. So for me, NBA virtual reality is my stuff that I love this week. So I wanted to just take a quick moment to thank you all for tuning in. I'll mention real quick where you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at Stuff We Love Pod, Instagram, Stuff We Love Podcast. We have a Facebook page that we encourage you to like. Our website is StuffWeLovePodcast.com. We have a products page on there where you can see things that we like and are linking to. We have a blog on the website, which I promise I'll update soon. Uh, fans can write to us, stuffwelovepodcast at gmail.com, and please leave us those good five-star reviews on iTunes. What that does is let other people know how much you are enjoying the show, and also it makes it easier for people to find our show when they're searching for podcasts in the iTunes platform. So that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, Dan, thank you for being on the show again. We, I'm loving doing these episodes with you. It's, it's really a ton of fun. Oh, thank you, Scott, for uh, for having me. I'm really enjoying it as well. It's, it's, it's a great time. Thank you. Thank you. So heading on out for this episode, I am Scott. And I'm Dan. And you've been listening to the Stuff We Love podcast.